gentlemen, thank you again for uh, for joining this morning, and uh, well, not morning perhaps for Zach, but uh, yeah, we, we want to do our sort of post campaign wrap up with you just to get your analysis because it's um, it definitely did not <laughs> did not go in any manner that is remotely historical, and it ended in a in a, a bit of a strange place for both sides. That uh, I think after the campaign, we weren't really sure even how to interpret that. Uh, and I think it would be fun to play armchair general a little bit with the two of you and maybe put us into the mindset of some of the historical players and um, what you think they might have been inclined to do at the end of of something like this. So um, why don't we kick things off by just sort of reintroducing both of you. Uh, Alex, we can start with you and then we'll go to Zach uh, just to remind everybody who is who is joining us on this podcast today. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Alex Mikaberidze. I'm a professor of history at Louisiana State University, and uh, I dabble in Napoleonic history, uh, writing uh, a book or two, um, uh, because it's, it's my passion, uh, just like you guys. Um, I, I, I love military history, especially 18th, 19th century. And Napoleonic Wars is what pays my bills. <laughs> Can we just take a, a second to marvel at this guy's humility? Dabbles in napoleonic history he's like the don of napoleonic history for our generation he's like yeah uh, you know i know a thing or two oh please that don that's a big word i'm more marveling that he actually found a way to get paid doing that from my experience in napoleonics just cost me lots of money now that that's yeah that is that is an accomplishment that i'm proud of (laughs) yeah hi folks i'm zach white uh host of the napoleonic wars pod I am now the Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, my specialisms are Napoleonic history, quite obviously, um, but particularly crime and punishment. Um, and going forwards, looking at the East India Company, um, both Army and Navy. And as we were discussing before we hit record, there's a certain irony to the fact that this the, the EIC is known as the Honourable East India Company when there is very little about their conduct that is even remotely honorable. <laughs> Just another uh, one of many English euphemisms. Yes. Uh, well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for the uh, for the introduction and bringing everybody back up to speed. Uh, Miles and I are very eager to dive into our uh, our version of events of what happened in our 1813 campaign. I sent both of you a couple of situation maps. Uh, sorry you got them so late, but hopefully you had a chance to uh, open up that email and s- see the maps to kind of see how the army has moved. And while I'm sure most of this discussion that we're going to have, it will be about what happened in our campaign. I would actually love to kick things off uh, with each of you briefly talking about the consequences of the historical campaign, just to put us in the right frame of mind so that we can compare what happened in our version to the real version I think everybody knows that the real version ended in this monster battle at Leipzig. Let's talk a little bit about the the consequences of that monster battle. And Zach, I want to start with you and I want to ask you a question that I think perplexes many armchair fans of the Napoleonic Wars. Why did Napoleon even accept battle at Leipzig? He's heavily outnumbered. He's surrounded from three, maybe even four sides, if you're looking at the... uh, at the western side of that river, uh, w- w- this seems like a terrible decision on his part, and it obviously goes down as a massive defeat. Why is Napoleon accepting battle here, and what is the the consequence of this? 
it, it does go down as a, a massive defeat, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to end that way. I know with hindsight, we can look at it and go, well, this was a nightmare situation. He's surrounded on all sides. But when you look at how Napoleon tries to fight Leipzig, there is that very clear sense that he feels success is within reach. You know, it's not, a, he's kind of doing this fending, well, he's got his subordinates fending off to the north. And initially that focus is very much in the southern part of the battlefield. And it's only as the net starts to close in that Leipzig becomes this battle that you look at and think, this is an absolute nightmare. You've got to remember Napoleon's style is very much a sort of spiderweb style of fighting, having these core in locations where they can make contact, hold their own, and fighting within sort of broader regions, engaging smaller forces, trying to fend off, sending reinforcements where they're needed. This is very much Napoleon's style. It's what he does incredibly well. So I don't think fighting at Leipzig is necessarily the worst idea in the world. Obviously, it doesn't help that he's got the river to one side of him, and that's always going to kind of hamper that flank. But I think the big turning point, and Alex, you, you may disagree with me, it comes down to the Saxons for me. The turning of the Saxons, that defection, is what probably makes Leipzig untenable. But Napoleon's been craving battle. He's been craving this opportunity to fight these guys. And yes, the numbers disadvantage is significant, but Napoleon always backs himself. He knows his men will fight hard for him, even though they are a conscript force. Think about what they've actually done over the course of that campaign. They do really well for troops that are so raw. And I think this is what he sees as an opportunity. Fend off in the north, concentrate on the south, deal with those guys, then head north and, and deal with the, the forces descending from that direction. And it, it ends up going horrendously wrong. He loses a huge chunk of his army. And at that point, then he's interested in peace negotiations again, which um, I often find quite ironic because he sort of, sort of has this sense of, yeah, you know, those deliberations that we never kind of quite got nailed down. I'm interested in those. Are you up for it? Well, um, I, I agree with Zach. Um, I will add um, just a little bit, maybe uh, in terms of you know why. And the uh, simplest answer will be because Napoleon has very little other choice. Um, the, uh, the Allies, after a decade of losing um, to Napoleon, uh, learned a valuable lesson that confronting him personally on the battlefield is a mistake. So we know that during the armistice, the Allied leadership right, got together at the, the lovely little um, palace at Trashenburg and came up with a plan. And the plan was to avoid direct engagement with Napoleon himself. In some respect, it's a grudging admission kind of grudging respect towards the man. And instead, focusing on these um, corps or detachments or any contingents that Napoleon sends out to secure strategic cooperational uh, 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 objectives. So he... We know that in in the fall campaign, right when we uh, when we in in a historical um, uh, scenario, we know that Napoleon tried repeatedly to take Berlin, and repeatedly his isolated corps was uh, defeated. Right, we were talking about you know, the battles of Danewitz, of Crossbaren, and and so on. Well, but 
his marshals also uh, fared less uh, equally uh, poorly in other front lines. And so what we see, therefore, by uh, by the uh, late fall of uh, 1813, after defeats at Kulm right, and, and, and other places, that Napoleon realizes what the Allies are doing. And his adjustment is essentially, instead of sending the troops out and trying to secure these operational and strategic objectives to bring them all in one place and force the allies to come to him. Right? So, uh, of course, that has a downside uh, of, of bringing all of allied forces in one place, but Napoleon is willing to, to risk it because he needs that decisive, decisive battle. And so we see at Leipzig this huge showdown, right? The Battle of the Nations, hundreds of thousands of men, the largest battle, right, that, that was fought in Europe until World War I was at that place. And the fact that it took three days for the Allies to defeat Napoleon is, is quite uh, uh, interesting in itself. But I think your question uh, was about the wider importance, right, of the campaign. And the campaign, to me, uh, I think there were several years ago there was a conference in in um, in London about bicentennial of Waterloo, and uh, I remember you know there was a lot of scholars of there discussing the importance of Waterloo, and uh, there was me and and my my good friend uh, Professor Michael Legere who who wrote definitive a study of the eighteen thirteen campaign, and it happened so that we came we were actually the last ones to speak, and. We've, you know, after all these speakers talking about the importance and the historical importance of Waterloo, the two of us actually came out and we said, well, Waterloo, in, in the large scheme of things, should be a footnote. Important footnote, but a footnote, because it is Leipzig that really is the turning point. Uh, it had Napoleon won at Leipzig, right? Not even decisively, if he had won at Leipzig, we cannot but wonder what would have had happened to coalition. Uh, I'm, I'm, if it were, if if it was a decisive victory, the empire would have endured. Certainly, in Western and Central Europe, there would have been adjustments in Eastern Europe. If it was just a victory, right, kind of that Napoleon got away with, um, the empire would have still survived in the West. Right? And so, to me, Leipzig is of tremendous uh, importance, especially because after the uh, def uh, uh, the defeat at Leipzig. Napoleon is forced then to retreat to France and the Allies begin dismantling what was effectively uh, one of the cru crucial uh, imperial constructs that Napoleon built in Europe. Confederation of the Rhine is dismantled. Then uh, towards the end of the year, right, we see the British making great strides in, uh, in, in Peninsula, uh, by the by, the start of eighteen fourteen, they will cross the Pyrenees. But at the same time, at the start of the year, the British Foreign Secretary arrives to the Allies and essentially reshapes this coalition into a, a commitment that will be not simply to fight Napoleon and defeat him, but also a commitment of staying together for twenty years. And that is the alliance that will endure beyond simply Napoleon's lifetime. So I think. This campaign and Napoleon's defeat is not only important in the downfall of the French Empire, but reshaping uh, European history in the first half of the 19th century. Okay, so the, the stakes are big then. <laughs> the stakes are very big. Yes, Zach. 
yeah, <laughs> that's I'm, right. I'm tempted. Yes, they are. Um, there, there's a bit of a rabbit hole there, isn't there? In the sense that, to what extent? And I agree absolutely with what Alex says. Firstly, Waterloo should never have happened. Even if Waterloo doesn't go the way of the Allies, the Russians are coming. There is going to be a Waterloo. Now, I don't quite subscribe to the Charles Esdale line of argument that Waterloo is a glorious irrelevance. Um, but nonetheless, and, and I say this as a Brit, you know, for people who like to make out that Wellington is is the big be all and end all in Spain and Portugal, that is not the case. The Peninsula War is always the sideshow, and it is absolutely at Leipzig. In terms of the alliance, I ju- I'm curious about Alex's thoughts on the fragility of the alliance, even in 1813 and 14, considering what we see once Napoleon's defeat. Uh, what well, first defeat uh, an exile to Elba and the the fracturing of the alliance um and I just wonder if a return by Napoleon is what kind of cements and solidifies the the desire to work together it, and, and it's not for me perhaps it's not until we have the hundred days campaign that the Allies sort of learned that lesson that actually they need to really get it together and sit down and work out a strategy for the future, which becomes initially the um, Congress system. And Beatrice de Graaf is doing brilliant work in terms of trying to see whether or not that that ethos continues in a different guise. Because the, the argument is very often, well, the Congress system very quickly dies um, come the, the um, sort of 1820s, 1830s. Beatrice's hypothesis is actually maybe it continues beyond that point in a different sense. But I'm just curious about Alex's thoughts about whether the Allies have quite learnt their lesson yet in in the wake of Leipzig. Yes and no. Um, the they have not learned it in a sense of division that we we know exists in the difference of of interests, strategic interests, strategic objectives. We know that during the uh, late fall of 1814, so right after the war is over and the winter of 1815, we know there will be a political crisis between the uh, allies uh, over the uh, the future of Poland and, and Saxony, the so-called Polish-Saxon crisis, which will uh, create a, a prospect of a war between the allies, which will in turn uh, create an opportunity for the French to whistle their way back into the that exclusive club of the great powers. However, I think this these divisions um, are more or less resulted, uh, well, sorry, resolved um, uh, by the time Napoleon returns in March. So the Polish crisis is is largely uh, um, resolved by February um, in, in late February of eighteen fifteen. Certainly, it helps that Napoleon comes back and it kind of reminds them, as, as Zach pointed out, that it reminds them, hey, we, we, we have a common enemy and we all fear him. But I think uh, the, the crisis was on its on its way to, to, to its resolution. For me, the most important agreement that they made is not the final, necessarily the final act that was, by the way, signed um, uh, nine days before Waterloo. Right? So it's... It's already pre-done. Whatever would have happened in Waterloo or not, the Congress already made its own decisions. But for me, the most important uh, uh, treaty was signed in March of 1814 at Chamon. That's the treaty I was alluding to, because many of the things that the Congress of Vienna approved and agreed upon later on and formally ratified are the things that 
um, were included in the Treaty of Shamon that was negotiated uh, with the help of British Secretary of, of Foreign Affairs, uh, Lord Castlereagh. That treaty to me is crucial. That is a treaty that talks about forcing France to disgorge all of its uh, conquests, returning to the pre-revolutionary borders. That's the treaty that argued that if Napoleon ever uh, came back, if Napoleon rejected the negotiations, uh, allies will stay together. That's the treaty then effectively lays down the vision for the uh, in new international order run by the great powers. So, and all those things are done in March of 1814. So this is where, yes, division exists, they will endure, but I think they were nuts. Uh, they were, um, the Allies had awakened to, to negotiate, to, comp, to, to find a way out. Napoleon helped them in that sense, but I think even with Napoleon, they would have accomplished it because no one in the spring of 1815 wanted another war. They've just gone through 20 plus years of warfare. They knew how devastating it is. Russia is, is dealing with enormous economic, logistical, uh, uh, social problems in the wake of that devastating invasion. And the last thing Alexander really needed was uh, an all-out war, especially against a, a newly formed coalition of Britain, France, and Austria. Well, I think the uh, the appetite for war is something that is going to now become a pivotal part of uh, the next part of our conversation here, which, I, uh, Miles, I want to turn this over to you to uh, to tell, uh, in your words, uh, Alex and Zach, how events transpired in our version of the 1813 campaign. By now, listeners to this podcast, by the time it comes out, will we'll have seen the YouTube series. So they'll, they'll have gotten a, a pretty detailed blow by blow. But Miles, maybe you can give us a little bit of a summary from the French perspective of what your strategy was going into this, because you adopted a very different strategy than your historical counterpart. And you can talk a little bit about how that worked. And um, I know that Alex and Zach have seen the maps, so they, they know where this is going. And this this will give them just a couple final moments to compose their thoughts on uh, on how we're going to interpret the way that this ended and what the coalition would have done, because the coalition's appetite for future conflict would really be sorely tested by the outcome of our 1813 campaign. Well, Greg, I, I think it's safe to say it played out exactly as I planned it. Uh, uh, not, not right. I got, I, I got, I got very fortunate. So, you know, the, the strategic situation for Napoleon is he's outnumbered five to three. Uh, he is in a central position, so he can initially mass against one army and have an advantage. And then after that, he will not have an advantage because the, the allies will be able to link up a couple of their armies. And so kind of looking at the map, um, if you run to the north, you can pounce on Bernadette's army. And then Silesia, Bohemia, and the army of Poland are all together against you. If you go to Silesia uh, in the center, uh, you know, the army of the north and Bohemia can come up and link. So the only strategy I came up with was jumping on the Austrians. And I decided that pretty early. And all of this talk about an Austrian armistice was a bit of a long con uh, to distract the allies and thinking about where I was going to go. And the reason I went after Austria is it puts the mountains between me and the bulk of the allied armies. So if I if if you're successful against the Austrians, 
then it's a much better place to play defense. And so there was a bit of gaminess based on the game we were playing in terms of, I want to amass a lot of victory points up front and then essentially play uh, a four corners defense to use an American basketball term to run out the clock. Uh, and, and that worked really well. Uh, it worked probably much better than I expected, uh, both because potentially some lucky die rolls and, and some of the allied decisions that uh, they were rather surprised uh, of me taking on essentially 80% of the French army South uh, and, and leaving Eugene with a, with a skeleton force to pretend he, he, he was there to defend the North and, and just, he just fell back and, went behind the, uh, the eld and, uh, uh, waited, uh, burn it up. Uh, so actually something that I'll, I want to get to a little bit later in our podcast is, uh, is a, a fun decision our players made, uh, which we can get into the reasons why, but, uh, the French sent Devu in our campaign to Italy and Eugene was kept in Germany. Uh, so Devu, Napoleon's most capable subordinate was sent to, uh, uh, a very different front to be sort of an independent front commander, uh, and you and you instead of Eugene. Uh, we we can get to a, a, maybe a fun what if about that in a moment, but for now, I would love to get uh, both of you, Alex and Zach, to kind of weigh in on on the plausibility of this strategy. So before we get to exactly how we think that this would have spun out in the end, could could we talk for a moment about the about the possibility that Napoleon could have struck very quickly, very heavily historically against one of the allied armies? That's not the strategy he took. He he comes to collapse his position later, but why didn't Napoleon consider an early concentration historically because I mean we saw in our war game that was a I mean, it happened to be a pretty devastating strategy because the allies just could not couldn't frankly get their shit together fast enough to <laughs> contend with that quick of a movement. And the allies do begin very spread out. So, uh, Zach, any any thoughts on why the historical Napoleon didn't go all in faster? Uh, for me, I, I it's interesting to hear Mars talk through why he's taking this strategy. And I think it's a strategy that's very much born out of the circumstances of a war game. Uh, it's the sort of thing that mm. you would absolutely do when you know you've got a, a hard time limit and you haven't necessarily got to worry about lines of communication in quite the same way. You've got to worry about uproar in Paris. Um, in, in terms of how he's played it within the context of a war game, it's an absolute blinder. Uh, and, and I really like the thinking. And you can see that just by looking at a map. You're absolutely right. The mountains are there, but the mountains are a problem in reality for both sides. Um, I did look at it and think, why go for Prague? Um, maybe Alex will disagree with me on this, but for me, when it comes to Austria, the prize inevitably has to be Vienna and not Prague. But obviously you've got confines of a map and all the rest of it. You know, this isn't a, a real world scenario. Um, I think... For me, uh, and Alex may disagree, but I, I think Napoleon clutches to this idea that the Austrians might just might just be persuaded. You know, the the emperor is uh, the emperor of Austria is still my friend. Um, you've got the familial ties through marriage and all the rest of it. Um, I think he desperately hopes that something might be done when it comes to the Austrians. 
Um, obviously, there comes a point where he gives up on that concept when it becomes really quite obvious that no, that they've the, the die is cast. Um, I think there's also necessity. You know, both of these sides need the time to regroup. And when it comes to Napoleon, his unending headache throughout this campaign is the cavalry situation. He doesn't have the cavalry that he would like to be able to reconnoitre, to gather the intelligence. And of course, cavalry is key in terms of finding the enemy, being able to, to start that process of pinning, to then be able to pounce with the remainder of the force. And I think you see that obviously hamstringing him throughout the first part of the 1813 campaign. And I think it continues to be an issue in the latter half. Yes, uh, I, 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 I agree with Zach. Um, to going back to you, Greg, your question about not concentrating, uh, to a degree he, he did. So he's, of course, his degree of the degree of concentration of his troops are dictated by operational and strategic needs. So Napoleon has um, about quarter um, out, about quarter uh, million troops in the spring of 1813. And he's facing three major kind of, um, objectives, right, that he needs to secure. One, to make sure that uh, the Northern front line is secure, that will be sending troops to Hamburg. And that decision is motivated both to deny the Allies this remarkable port where you can bring additional resources from or bring more troops. Besides Bernadotte's troops are amassing in Swedish Pomerania, therefore you need to secure that front line. The second will be to, to secure Berlin. So we see Udino's right, um, repeated attempts to, to go uh, towards the Prussian capital. And the third was to, to deal with the main coalition forces. So in that sense, Napoleon does have a concentration, certainly on up, uh, 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 in terms of uh, overall command. He's in charge. He's giving the guidance. And he, each of the contingent that is not part of the main force that Napoleon himself is commanding, well, they have a clear operational goal. So uh, I cannot fault him for, for that. What I can fault him for is going all out against Austria. <laughs> What was he thinking? <laughs> it worked. It worked, Alex, in the game. I don't it know. Worked. This is this is the thing, Greg. I'm looking at the map seven. I'm looking at, and even though you you know initially you said that it didn't work out kind of historically how history worked, but when I look at the map seven, I actually look at it as Napoleon in a really bad spot. He lost essentially his positions north of the mountains. If there's any one particular winner in, in the fall campaign, that's Bernadotte. Look well, at that's him. for sure. Yeah, that's for yes. sure. Strutting on the Unterlinden cochlea, <laughs> right? Probably dreaming of, of uh, being in Paris soon yeah. enough. And then Napoleon's army, um, yes, numerically it is there, but it is stuck in this really difficult terrain in the mountains, or at least on the other side of the mountains. Well, it is about to be surrounded by three armies. So I don't know. Uh, whether this outcome on a strategic operational level, if it's that much different from actual history. So, and what surprised ooh, me, Miles, and, and this is what I want to kind of ask him, when we were doing the debriefing, how the hell was Blucher was able to escape from Napoleon's attack? Is that a sign of French troops being tired? 
Napoleon himself losing that touch? It was my one bad die roll. Smoking <laughs> <laughs> like was Napoleon. It's always the fault with the dice. Always the fault with the dice. Except when you win. Then, then it's strategy. Uh, <laughs> where we <laughs> ended, Napoleon's army had pretty much moved through the passes and was moving back to Dresden. Um, because we we had we had smacked the Austrians around and, and the fight was out of them. Um, so I think we ended a little better than you, you think. But again, I think Zach hit it right on the head. It was a strategy that was 80% dictated by the false confines that we set up for the game and 20% from history, which is what all war games are. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a falsity to it. Um, but let and, me ask you, Miles, yeah. um, because in the, in the debrief, you mentioned that you agreed to give Austria uh, victory points if they stayed out, and yet you ignore Essentially, this is the Well, that, 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 that was a bit of deceit on my part. Uh, that was to kind of make the Allies think I had no intention of going after Austria. I I had come up with this strategy a long time ago. Uh, and because, you know, they had to make up with their, they're, they're going to set their armies up. And I wanted them to think I was going to go after either Bernadotte or Silesia, which I think worked because where they deployed their armies, they were way back from where the French could get at them, uh, which also meant they were way back from coming to the aid of Austria. Uh, so it was a bit of a, 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 a subterfuge on my part. So I do want to ask uh, both of you guys about, I mean, if, if if we look at how our version of history played out, you know, Miles and the French players were gambling on basically knocking Austria out of the coalition. That That was the play that they mm -hmm. were making, concentrate south. Do you perceive Austria as maybe the most fragile member historically of that coalition? What is the Austrian mindset here? I mean, they had really only just committed formally to the coalition going into the fall after kind of him hauling around, maybe considering whether or not to accept some kind of French deal historically. But here we go in our version of history and boom, the moment that they've entered this coalition, Napoleon is racing south and and defeating them pretty handily in a series of, of three field engagements. And suddenly Napoleon's sitting in Prague. I realize that's not Vienna because of the confines of our map. And, you know, maybe if our map had been bigger, Napoleon would have considered driving even farther than Prague. But just at Prague alone, he already has defeated Schwarzenberg and, and de Tolly in a, in a few field battles. Could that have been enough historically to maybe act? cause the Austrians to say, eh, you know what, we're out of this thing. How, how firm was their commitment, Zach? Alex is definitely far more knowledgeable on this than than I am, so I'll caveat that at the start, so that if he turns around and says, Zach, you're an absolute imbecile, um, I've I've covered that one off. Of course, he won't tell me that I'm an imbecile because he's far too nice, but um, Alex has very kind of pleasant ways of, of making it clear that actually you, you don't know what you're talking about and it's perhaps best to keep quiet. Um, he's one of the nicest people when it comes to rebukes that I've ever come across. When it comes to this scenario, for me, I, I don't think the Austrians enter into this half-heartedly. And the reason for that is 1809. They've still got that memory of Bagram and everything that follows fresh in their memory when they went into a war, when frankly the army wasn't ready, the reforms hadn't been followed through mm -hmm. to the point where the army 
was in a state where it could reasonably and they, they do quite well you know that's the thing that perhaps sometimes gets missed the austrians give napoleon something to think about but still ultimately lose by 1813 inevitably the austrians have had the time to complete those reforms within their armed forces that therefore means they are a tougher nut to crack now i don't know quite what the the rules and the dynamics are within the context of your game so i can't kind of do a direct comparison um so maybe that is a factor when it comes to napoleon occupying prague i think it's a huge blow in terms of psychology because what we've had here looks very similar to the sort of 1805-67 style of warfare napoleon strikes and he hammers us and what are we going to do now but for the austrians i don't think anything other than the occupation of vienna forces them back to the negotiating table i also don't think that the russians and again alex will know more about the social situation within russia and he kind of alludes to this in what he said earlier there are going to be problems with a long drawn out war but i don't think the russians are going to look at this situation and go okay now we need to sue for peace and go home equally within the context of the scenario that you've created here Berlin's been reoccupied. So suddenly Prussian morale begins to recover. There's a greater inclination amongst the German states to really seriously reconsider their position. And we've alluded to it already. Napoleon's not really in an ideal situation come the final turn, because in a real world situation, all you've got to do is strike for Leipzig and if you can cut napoleon's lines of communications it's it's i almost feel like this is 1812 all over again what we've created here in that sense that napoleon is a bit too far away from safety and from home and the winter is now setting in that's going to create all kinds of logistical challenges sure it creates logistical challenges for both sides but the russians are used to this because the russians have just fought the 1812 campaign sure that's caused problems for them but I think Napoleon perhaps has more to fear out of what the next three months hold in this scenario because of the fact that, you know, you've, you've gone so far into sort of the, the enemy heartland um, that it, it creates its own problems. The, the only thing I, I, I change on your comment is by the end of the game, we're ended, Napoleon was back at Dresden. He was just about there. Um, so he could block Leipzig. But I think he's still... Now he's got parity with with the uh, the Army of the North and Silesia and Poland, and, and they still outnumber him. So he's not he's not in an ideal situation. Alex, what are your thoughts on the fragility of the Austrian commitment? You know, Zach's thinking that if they if by the time they commit historically, they're they're probably all in on yeah. this. Um, do you do you think that a few battlefield defeats and the occupation of Prague would have given the Austrians? some second thoughts historically uh, in whether or not they wanted to continue hostilities with the French. Could they have been peeled off? No, I think Zach covered that very well. Um, so if we assume that the this scenario that we're playing has bit of history, and bit of kind of gamemanship, uh, then the part of history probably is the one that took place in, during the summer um, uh, negotiations between the allies. So I assume you you incorporate that, uh, and that implies that 
in, in the summer of 1813, just as Napoleon is preparing for that invasion of Prague, uh, that the Austrians, Russians, Prussians sat down and, and negotiated the Treaty of Reichenbach. They've consolidated their alliance. They've talked to the British um, about securing their commitments, including money. Um, there is little chance for Austrians to simply announce their intentions to join the coalition and then back out in the wake of what seems to be minor French victories. Yes, loss of Prague, as Zach mentioned, is painful, but uh, both Emperor Francis and Metternich and Schwarzenberg, the Austrian commander-in-chief, not to mention the rest of the Austrian officer corps and elite, would have been determined to fight Napoleon because this is the best chance they have in the better part of a decade to challenge Napoleon's uh, dominance, insufferable kind of dominance. So I, I don't see if Austrians uh, leaving. What I do see, and this is again, uh, is that uh, to not to beat the dead horse, but I think Napoleon should have done a, a deal with Austrians because a political solution would have been far more easier to secure for Napoleon with Austrians than with the rest of coalition. Let's assume that the Congress of Prague between Napoleon and Metternich took place in, in this game. What were, what were the demands that Metternich make, would have made there? He would have made the same things that he did in 1813, right? Give up Central Central um, Europe. And in, in one point, Metternich tells Napoleon that, hey, if you give up Confederation of the Rhine, you're not going to lose anything tangible, right? Those states are you know, on their own. They're sovereign states. You, you serve as their protector and mediator, but Kind of getting out will not necessarily um, impringe on the French sovereignty. And in that conversation, Metternich mentions that he doesn't want to deal with the situation in Portugal or Spain or elsewhere. Those are Napoleon's other concerns. So uh, I think the fact that Napoleon was unwilling to trade those political points or victory points at the end in, in order to avoid Austrian showdown, I think it was a big mistake. Another one, and uh, I know there's miles left in frustration. Um, so typical, so typical. <laughs> stormed out. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't drop the hat like Napoleon. <laughs> like the real Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think in a wider context, here's one of the reasons why I think uh, Austrians would not have left. I assume we're dealing with the situation in Peninsula as it is, as, as it took place historically, which means that Napoleon, by now, by the fall, late fall of 1813, lost control of all of Portugal and Spain. So, as from an Austrian point of view, the the pain of losing Prague is more than compensated by the British success in the south. They know that the invasion of France is, is coming, um, and why not wait it out? Why not give it a couple of more months? and see how things turn. So if we look just at this map, right, the one that you sent us, situation might look not as well for the airlines, but if we look a zoomed out map of Europe, I think the coalition is in much, much better uh, position. If so I this is, yeah, please, on, please, Zach, go ahead. That. Um, it, it was one of the things that I had in my sort of scattered notes um, prior to 
us recording this is sort of the macro impact of this. And I think Alex is absolutely right. In you, you don't change within the context of this story. We don't change the course of the, the Peninsula War. That is is still playing out. And by the latter stages of 1813, it is pathetically apparent that even one of Napoleon's better commanders, Sewell, is not able to even defend the last major French stronghold in the form of San Sebastian and, and attempts to strike south to relieve that siege fail leads to, I mean, he does very well initially in terms of catching Wellington off guard, but nonetheless, he's not able to. The French are absolutely on the defensive. And it's interesting to speculate, and obviously all we can do is speculate, on what kind of impact this scenario that we've got here would have on the way in which the British government then try and lean on Wellington. Because Wellington, throughout late 1813, early 1814, is very concerned that if he pushes too far north into France too quickly, he's going to get Napoleon turning around and coming south with reinforcements. And that's a prospect that I think it's fair to say he fears. It's not that Wellington doesn't back himself. Of course he does. He's as arrogant as Napoleon can be on occasion. But um, nobody wants to poke the, the, the sleeping bear, as it were. Um, and I think Wellington is quite happy to gently push into the south of France, secure the propaganda victory that that represents, um, focus very much on sort of the strategic uh, kind of side of what is safe in terms of achievements in the south of France, and wait for the developments in in Central uh, Europe and within, uh, within France itself. So where we have this situation, I do wonder if the Austrians then start to lean on the British government. So the British government then starts to lean on Wellington to push for a different strategy, a more aggressive advance that places more pressure on Napoleon. Um, and, and there are two ways of looking at that. One is Wellington's Wellington, and he's a law unto himself. And he, by this point, is absolutely in the driving seat when it comes to strategic objectives in the Peninsula War. And he is well within his... Um, his nature when you consider the possibility of him writing a, a very angry letter because he did love an angry letter the man loved a rant um, that basically sends Bathurst the Secretary of State for war who would have been tasked with probably communicating this you need to push harder into France um, you can imagine sort of Bathurst being sent off with a flea in his ear um, basically saying you're not on the ground shut up let me do my job I know what I'm doing um, P.S. Have you noticed this long string of victories that I've secured? Because it shows that I'm I'm the best here. That that's very much sort of the Wellington style. Um, it could be a difficult person to have round for dinner. Um, but the flip side of that is that he would then perhaps turn around and say, "Look, if you want me to push further north, that creates the risk Napoleon's going to come south. Give me more men." And the reason that that then becomes an interesting prospect is because you then have the question mark of what happens in the context of the War of eighteen twelve which is not going the way that the British anticipate in that they are winning on land, but losing at sea, not what they expect. They expect to win on sea and lose on land. Um, and so they've got these very difficult strategic priorities of do we send troops into what then becomes the, the army that besieges um, Antwerp, i.e., you know, do we deploy to northern slash central Europe or do we send troops to um, the, the new world? to deal with the War of 1812 and capitalise on successes there? Or do we actually strip out troops 
from the, the coalition force that is now in Germany, do we instead reinforce Wellington to the south where he can achieve a greater strategic um, benefit? And there's no way of us knowing the, the realities of that. Uh, but I'm curious what Alex has to make of that sort of strategic game of chess that would now have to be played in the result of this. Because the other argument is that is nothing changes because ultimately it looks as though there might be a Leipzig on the way, just in a different guise and in a different location as a result of this situation. Well, let me jump in on that real quick, Alex, and ask and, and, and add another question to Zach's question, which is that if we if we think now in our version of history that, look, the onset of the winter season is rapidly approaching. Napoleon has won a series of minor battlefield victories, but a string of them in against the Austrians and in Saxony. But now he's sitting in Saxony. You know, Miles said most of his army is now concentrated around Dresden. Is that a tenable position going into the winter with everything that Zach said? I mean, is Napoleon, with all of his pride and confidence, is he going to just abandon Saxony? Because everything's still on the line there, but we're moving into the winter. And Zach pointed out, you know, we've got Wellington now experiencing quite a bit of success, threatening to push into France itself. What put us in the mindset of the real Napoleon? You know, he's in a real pickle here that we've created because he's still stuck in Saxony, still searching for that big victory, but also experiencing pressure back at home. Where where would he be gone at this point? Could have he afforded to leave and go back to southern France? <laughs> uh, maybe he wanted to, but no, he can't. Uh, I think, uh, again, looking at the map that you sent us, I, I, I when you initially sent it to us, I, I marveled at it because I mean, Napoleon's main army is in Bohemia, but he still maintains the footing in, in Saxony under the command of Eugene. And I realized that, you know, um, militarily, certainly, I, I assume Miles wanted to kind of have a uh, a force uh, on the other side of the mountains to as an advance guard. But politically, it is also very important for Napoleon to keep force in Saxony because Saxony is the largest of the kind of middle um, of the middle German states. Uh, and Napoleon needs to make sure that the Confederation of the Rhine, of which Saxony is the member, along with Bavaria and others, that they kind of stay loyal to him. So abandoning Saxony is not a, a choice he would have made, neither militarily nor politically. Right? And yet we, we see that Bernadotte pushing very hard from the north against uh, Eugene and, and threatening uh, French positions in Saxony. Uh, Zach is, is is right, and I think, Greg, you echoed that too, is that I think we're on the way to a new Leipzig. Instead of Leipzig, it will be the Battle of Prague. Um, I think Miles will try to prevent Blucher and Bennington from crossing the mountains, but I don't think he will succeed um, in, in doing that because Bennington can come from uh, Schweitznitz uh, passes, uh, which Napoleon doesn't control. And Blucher can certainly can can far uh, kind of force his way through Gerlitz in coordination with other attacks. So I do expect that if we continue this campaign, and I don't know how much more time you have to to push this campaign on, that there would be a decisive battle at Prague, and that's where we I think the future will be decided. If Napoleon delivers a decisive blow, I think the coalition will have to 
um, to fracture decisive but if it's just a, a a success like the one that Napoleon already had three times I think the coalition will endure knowing full well that Wellington is doing very well Battle of Victoria has been uh, uh, fought already uh, the British troops are on the way to the Pyrenees and, and that cannot but encourage the coalition to fight uh, to fight for another day so even after success that Napoleon had on tactically, right? I still see him losing strategically uh, in, in this campaign, just as he did in, in actual history. So let me ask you this question, Alex. I mean, our, I think our French players, you know, credit credit to Miles. They, they, they did very well in our war game. Honestly, it's hard for me to imagine how Napoleon could have done much better. I think we might have asked this exact question in our first podcast. What, Under what circumstance is this winnable? Because what you're describing to me is a really, even with his tactical successes that we had in our game, that he's still in a really untenable political and strategic position. Was there any scenario that Napoleon is coming out of this okay? Or do you think it yes. was only the diplomatic solution that That's you mentioned? That's right. Not military. Um, There's no military okay. solution to this. And this is where both in the first meeting and, and today, I could not stress more how important it, was, it, it would have been for Napoleon to show political finesse, willingness to compromise, willing to trade territory for something bigger. Um, he could have found the solution to this by, you know, in, in your notes, in your debrief, you, you say they, he, they tried to buy the Austrians off. But we know that Miles never intended that. So, but he should have, because I think he would have done much, much better to have kept Austrians on his side as an arm, as an arm neutrality, but nonetheless, because otherwise, what I see here is a is a game of whack-a-mole. Tactically, he will maybe prevail over Blucher, maybe prevail over Schwarzenberg. But it is on a strategic level that Napoleon doesn't have the advantage, and the Allies do. Look at uh, Prussians, look at oh, Prussia, look at Saxony, look at the northern t uh, territories north of the Bohemian Mountains. These are all coalition uh, logistical hub now. They can secure resources. They can mobilize troops. Russia is completely unfettered in, in terms of its ability to rally forces. Austrians still have most of the empire under their control, hence a, a huge uh, logistical base to rely on. And Napoleon is losing footing in the peninsula. So I, I don't see how Napoleon can win this militarily. Question for you, Miles. Um, <laughs> on the chance that we, as a club, decide at some point that maybe we want to spin this thing forward to see what a giant battle would have looked like at the end of this, do you think that you and your fellow marshals would have been inclined to hunker down around Dresden where you were ending your concentration when our campaign ended? Or would have you been looking to move on from that position? Is, is is that the area that you would have chose to fight? Or, I mean, I'm wondering if you would have maybe maneuvered back closer to Leipzig, back closer to the to the Elbe. 
You're on mute, Miles. <laughs> Napoleon. <laughs> Most people prefer me on mute. Uh, uh, yeah, if the map was bigger and Vienna was on it, I would not have gone for that because it's just I, I would have gone back up north. So I couldn't knock the Austrians out of, out of the war. And, and as we were setting up the campaign, we made a decision that Austria will come in. There's no way to keep them out forever because it just unbalances the game. But, you know, ha ha had we continued the game, um, I would have gone after the uh, uh, Bernadette. Uh, I would have moved everything north to take on him because, again, he's the most exposed army. The Austrian army's in tatters. The Russian-Prussian army's got to take a long time to move through the mountains. Um, but in reality, I, I've got a series of battles that are, you know, roughly at parity. And I, I can't lose one. If I lose one, it's over. And the law of averages would have caught up to me. So I think we delayed the inevitable by playing a little bit better than historically. But I think militarily, it's just an unwinnable situation for Napoleon because the Allies can take a lot of losses. Uh, as long as they're inflicting some on the French army, they continually have a numerical advantage. And, and just to kind of um, return to to this, um, in in September of eighteen thirteen, the um, the Allies negotiated a series of treaties called uh, Treaties of Teplitz, and those treaties, in addition to the summer uh, agreements, bound Austria to the coalition because now they have a common vision of what they will what will they um, gonna seek together and. Austrians laid out seven points, and those seven points the coalition more or less accepted. And so just to tell you kind of what was the vision that the Austrians had and what the coalition had in September, this is uh, Napoleon must give up uh, Duchy of Warsaw, which he doesn't control. Uh, he must uh, agree to the reorganization of the German Confederation. He must uh, return the next provinces in northern Germany, which miles you don't control right? um, mm -hmm. and then the bigger ones the ones that i think miles might um kind of quibble about were the uh, french withdrawal from italy holland less so spain you know no longer control spain so in the large scheme of thing right if we look at these seven points the big question right is that whether you want to keep fighting this whack-a-mole approach over the issue of Holland and Italy, or if, if you want to find an, a, a political compromise. Miles mentioned that he would have gone under Bernadotte. But once again, if we are kind of guiding by the historical part of the narrative, then Bernadotte would have been subscribing to the Trashenberg plan. He would have retreated towards Swedish Pomerania, stretched Napoleon from the Bohemian mountains towards the coastline, the Baltic coastline, which have allowed the other armies to pounce. There is no <laughs> good scenario. Yeah. Napoleon will excel, and he did. He will still excel on the on the individual battle, but ultimately he should have sought a political solution. Well, a political solution was, you know, it, this is why it's good to have these conversations because that's not baked into the confines of the war game rules. And actually, that's something I want to kind of wrap up our conversation with asking the two of you. I know that the two of you are not necessarily game designers, but I want you to put your game designer hat on for just a moment because 
the game that we played, the Campaign of Nations, is a great board game. It's actually quite simple, only eight pages of rules. We've played it a few times in the club. I really think it's excellent. But I want to ask you about the victory conditions, because I do wonder whether the victory conditions as written in the game are what you feel are appropriate right. to history. And I will tell you this very simply. The board game heavily emphasizes the value of battlefield victories. It doesn't really matter in the board game how big you win. What matters is how big the battle is. So the more troops that are present, the board game awards you more points for winning that, that game. The board game gives you very little points relatively for control of geographic areas. So objectives like Berlin or Dresden or Leipzig aren't really worth that much. I mean, Miles went down and grabbed Prague. Prague in the game is only worth two points. That's not even as much as one battle would be worth. So I am wondering, in the context of now we're talking about sort of Napoleonic warfare generally, how important are these geographic locations broadly and in the context of 1813 versus battles? Do you, do you think that the board game kind of has the right balance? Are the battles really what this what this is all about? And Zach, well, we'll start with you. Oh, joy. Um, ah, I always love putting you on the spot. Quickly. Yeah. Um, the first point is the slightly banal one that I often find that needs to be made to people when they're starting to talk about the pros and cons of war games or films or, or whatever medium it might be, which is that we're dealing with entertainment here. And mm -hmm. you've got to make sure that the fun element is put front and center of this now if you're going to play a war game inevitably as part of wars you've got to have battles and so there's got to be something to incentivize that otherwise what you're looking at is a game of pushing tokens up and down a, a cardboard representation of a particular region in which case are you really doing much more than playing snakes and ladders i'm, I'm not sure that you are um slightly facetious but you, you get my point um so from the entertainment perspective i think the balance is absolutely there but in the process of that you have to sacrifice something mm -hmm. right because it isn't it's an artificial construct it's a recreation it's not actual reality um i think yes w within the context of geopolitics inevitably the whole the holding of locations is going to be much much more significant can you replicate that? Um, perhaps it's feasible. I'm thinking of um, computer games that that sort of try to create kind of mini world um, scenarios, whether it's your Total War series or whatever your, your favorite might be. Other brands are available. Um, and there they do try and increasingly they do try and, and build in these other elements and they've got increasingly complex to the point where you've got morale and you've got factional infighting and all the rest of it and it becomes a different game of whack-a-mole actually because you've got to try and consider all of these these variables but even then i would say that the emphasis is on the military complex not necessarily on winning battles per se obviously if you can win a battle that helps but the negotiation and and diplomacy tool much though it is always there in my experience has often been a far weaker tool than 
what you can secure if you just go in and annex something arbitrarily. Uh, and I think that that's often going to be the case. You know, you've got to have something that rewards action um, within the context of computer games. Inevitably, they want you to go and play the battle because they've invested heavily in all of the, the graphic design behind that and the, the mechanics of making that happen. Um, so I think there's always going to be that disconnect. I think that disconnect is fine, just so long as people do that thing that I think sometimes gets missed, which is to just remember it's not reality, people, and that's okay. So long as at the end of this process, if you're really interested, for the love of God, will you please pick up a wretched book, <laughs> which is my unending beef with people that uh, pick pick up a history book. Don't just pick up Sharp and go, oh, I've read Sharp, therefore I know everything there is to know about Napoleonic history. Um Sorry, that turned into a rant, which wasn't really kind of directed at your original question, but I think it's okay. Um, but yes, it within the context of a geopolitical world, and you know, this is where we get into the you know, war as a continuation of um foreign policy by other means, um, your, your classic Clausewitzian comments. Um, yes, inevitably what you hold and how you can hold it ends up being very different. And it doesn't need to be a city. We've talked about the the significance of holding a mountainous region as a as a defensive point that you can either fend off an enemy or you can use it as a striking point from which to to hurt your enemy um so yeah i i think it's something that's very hard to um replicate the one thing that i i don't know the the, the rule set so i don't know how easy this is to um factor in but i think morale is something that is really important to try and factor into games but then again it depends on how much you how deep you want to go because sometimes you can create these wonderfully complex rule sets that are very close to reality and people find themselves having less fun because that's not quite what they're looking for they want to sit down with a beer they want to roll some dice um and maybe they want to sort of make a few gaffes about mm -hmm. i don't know how the imperial guard was rubbish because you know they they ended up being beaten by wellington at waterloo or whatever it might be Do you know what i mean people want to sort of uh, get different things out of it and and i think there needs to be that balance between complexity reality and ultimately having fun well this board game definitely airs more on the fun light side with only eight pages of rules we have played some really complex stuff um but yeah th this one is a little faster playing um alex what are your thoughts on the the relative importance of battles versus holding geographic objectives again the game really emphasizes the battles is that your interpretation of sort of the best way to come at this from 1813 um no uh, and, and then i echo what zach was saying is that you know kind of we all have played different type of war games or, or board game tabletop games as a whole so each rule set has its own um kind of um uh, quirks. What I usually do, and I was uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording that uh, uh, I, I do wargaming with my students. Um, so what I do is kind of a variation of what you are trying to do. I usually play with my students uh, uh, kind of different games, but two particularly are uh, popular. Uh, and uh, one is uh, the classic diplomacy game. Uh, and the other one is Napoleon in Europe, which is a large um, kind of um, map on, uh, uh, that allows up to seven players uh, to play. And the reason I mentioned this is that I play a modified versions of them. Uh, uh, in, in both cases, I think the driving engine for me is, is a diplomacy approach where 
individuals are uh, it's kind of representing each country are more engaged in political dimension, negotiating, making bargains, quid pro quo. And then once we go to a showdown, right? Once they kind of there's an invasion or, or two armies meet, then we shift to a more uh, wargaming element where we have miniatures and we play it through. And the re uh, for me, that gives an advantage of uh, of using diplomacy's uh, focus on control of territory by assigning points to what they call uh, supply centers. So this way, Leipzig, for example, can be a supply center. Dresden, uh, Prague, all these big kind of cities could be valuable in terms of trading back and forth. So whoever controls a supply center gets a, a victory point, and that victory point can be traded uh, to, to a, another power. So in, in this sense, uh, Miles, let's say, could have simply offered Austrians, hey, I'll give you this and this and this supply centers, yeah. and you would have gotten this many points if you agree to a shared victory. So uh, in, in I've done, in the springtime, for example, I've done a a campaign with my students, and unexpectedly, the Ottomans, who are usually the weakest power, the Ottomans won that uh, game by doing this, both conquest and doing very well with dice, <laughs> uh, but also smartly offering the French uh, uh, and the British supply centers uh, kind of on in the territory where uh, where they knew they would not be necessarily be able to reach or necessarily do much mm -hmm. there, and that. I think offers both the wargaming element of it, but also the political element where you can bargain, you can make alliances in exchange for territory. So I like that. I want to sneak in one more question here. And then Miles, you, I don't know if you have any to wrap up. Um, I, I can't help myself from asking because it is relevant for how our campaign ended. Alex, you mentioned supply centers in the context of the game, you know, diplomacy. Um, in our version of this war game, Napoleon's supply centers at Magdeburg and Leipzig were not taken, but were under threat when we ended the game. Bernadotte is in a position where that is kind of where he's driving next. And Napoleon sitting at Dresden, I guess, is going to have to figure out, do I need to go back and deal with this or not? Um, what is the logistical, what is your interpretation of the logistical situation in this campaign? Is Napoleon, does he need to hold both Magdeburg and Leipzig in order to be able to keep, you know, 250,000, 300,000 men in the field in Saxony? Where is he kind of drawing his main source of supply, Alex? Uh, the logistical lines run all the way back to France, to low countries, uh, to, to, you know, what is today, Belgium, Netherlands. But holding this line on the Elbe River is, is crucial. It's crucial uh, for Napoleon in order to bring pressure on Prussians to uh, continue to extort uh, enormous amounts of material, supplies, food, ammunition from Saxony and other members of the Confederation of the Rhine. So the, that line on Elvis is very important to keep for that reason. But it's not existential, right? Napoleon can still um, tap uh, the resources of France. We know that the mobilization of 1813 was largely done in France. Uh, the contingents from Germany have been already been destroyed on the fields of the, uh, uh, in, in Russia. So the German states were struggling to provide sufficient amount number of troops. Do you hear that rumble? Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's the <falling> coming. 
<laughs> no, we, we have a, a massive storm front coming in. But, but in any case, um, so logistically, I think it is important for him to maintain uh, a foot in in Saxony and, and part of Prussia. But it's not uh, decisive. And we know historically, right? Even after defeat in Leipzig, he continued to fight. So he was able to uh, to to use the resources of France itself. Uh, to to resist uh, quite uh, you know uh, quite valiantly against the coalition. Well, Miles, uh, we've we've stolen an hour of time from these two fine gentlemen, these historians. As we as we wrap up, do you have any other closing thoughts? I, I hate to say, you know, our club really interpreted the end of the campaign as very favorable to the French, and it is interesting to talk to the two of you who are looking at a, a broader strategic picture. Well, I, I... And, and suggesting and, that it actually is a little dicier when you zoom out from our map, which is obviously beyond yeah, the confines I, I, of our game. I think that's an example of why big multiplayer games are so fun, because you get the human element. And, and I think what the French were able to do, uh, my dog wants to get his head in the picture, um, is I think we broke the allied morale um, because we, you know, using the game mechanics, we, we had pretty much an insurmountable numerical lead, whether that's historically accurate or not. And, and you know, when you're playing a game, you, you're, you're, you're tunnel vision into that little map and, and that's all you see. Uh, and if that's all you're looking at, it, it, it's pretty daunting to continue as the allies. And I think that's, that's a struggle they have. I think in reality, well, reality, if I did in historical context, we may have delayed the 1814 campaign to 1815. I don't think it's ultimately a different outcome. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it, it, I, I bought some time for Napoleon. I probably didn't buy a different outcome. After that, it, all we it, have it, to do is look at 1814, right? Again, Napoleon can go on the offensive. He can win. And, and everybody sort of looks at the 1814 campaign and goes, wow, Napoleon still got it. Yes, he has. He's Napoleon. Mm -hmm. He hasn't forgotten how to wage war. It's simply the nature of of the mm -hmm. the set of circumstances that he's facing um, in in eighteen twelve and eighteen thirteen that looks as though something has changed. He hasn't lost those raw skills, but the victories themselves count for nothing if if you can't factor in the the geopolitics. And, yeah. and Alex makes the point far better than anybody else could. Diplomacy is key, and this is why Napoleon loses his empire. Because mm -hmm. he's a master of warfare, he is, in my opinion, quite cack-handed when it comes to diplomacy and negotiation. I love war games uh, for that very reason: is that to kind of to see if you make the same decisions like Napoleon, and what are the factors contributing to it. Um, so I know that we take some liberties with it, but uh, once you kind of contemplate the outcomes. Um, and contemplate what could have happened. I think that's a very worthwhile uh, enter, uh, undertaking. And that's one of the key reasons why I wanted to do this with you, is to see if Napoleon could pull it. Uh, and, and even though on, on the paper it looks like he could, it just reinforces my conclusion that ultimately he would not have been able to win this war. Well, I, I'm, I'm so glad that the two of you joined us for this talk. And I, I echo Zach's comments about how <laughs> the frustration that, look, war games are only at their best. Historical war games are only at their best when you have a genuine interest in the history, when you want to follow up by reading a book, by understanding the context, because 
Yeah, you know, on our little map board, the French did great. They they really did. But talking to the two of you does make me wonder, wow, you know, like, even if the historical Napoleon had done a lot better in this campaign, the way that Miles and our other French players did, maybe it wouldn't have been enough. And it, it gives you a, a different appreciation of the challenge that Napoleon is facing going into 1813. Um, even if we go back and replay this 10 times, maybe... Maybe it doesn't really matter. Maybe there is no, as Alex said, maybe there is no military option for him to come out with this. And and war games are all about military options. Yeah. So you you guys are making the case for a, a new kind of war game here, one that takes, you know, the all the diplomatic elements much more into consideration than we're used to doing. Uh, than we're used to doing as war gamers. Uh, yeah. Miles, anything else as we close out? No, uh, uh really appreciate the generosity of time you've both given us for this little silly exercise uh, and uh, you know, love your work uh, and, and I'm continually humbled by how much I do not know about Napoleonic history when I talk to either one of you. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and, and hopefully we could do another project where perhaps maybe we get you guys as players. We would love to have you as players. Oh, we would. I think Zach and I would love to be uh, in your company because one of the great things about all of this is your passion, your passion for history, your passion for the wargaming, um, the, the amount of money, uh, uh, time, interest that you put into all of this is, is, is stunning. And so it, it only uh, makes me... Uh, and I want to to bring you know increase my <laughs> commitment. <laughs> You're spending I'm yes. at your table and looking at my table. I'm like I'm gonna <laughs> I gotta work. <laughs> We're great at spending money on toys. Absolutely, We're we, we got to get Zach. Don't in tell on this. our wives. <laughs> we got to get Zach to buy some toys next. He's our next target. Oh, that there is there is a a pile of Napoleonic figurines that are sitting there staring at me and making me feel guilty but what people don't yeah. realize is that acquiring model kits painting model kits building model kits and playing with said model kits are four different hobbies that you have to have time for in your life that is the challenge there you are absolutely right and that's a huge barrier to the hobby because there are so many different time consuming elements i, I think that keeps a lot of people out but yeah. Um, you know, hopefully watching our our YouTube videos and us having fun can can be inspiration for people to realize it, it is worth it. You know, it's it is such a great time, even though the allies got their butts kicked in this campaign on the map. Uh, we all we all had a fabulous time. Um, Zach, if if listeners here want to connect with you, if they want to learn more about what you do with your podcast, what's the best way for them to find you online? uh folks i'm on twitter slash x slash whatever it's going to be called next week who knows um, <laughs> Ask if Elon. It's around <laughs> next week even which is a matter for debate um, i'm at zed white history you can also find my podcast the napoleonic wars pod wherever you get your podcasts and alex uh go ahead and give us the plug for uh the recent publication <laughs> the recent publication which i just got a copy of i got my got my copy of uh of the recent book uh what is it that, that you've been working on I, uh, well, um, for the, uh, I think listeners especially interested in, uh, I'll look at Miles. Thank you so much, Miles, for your support. He's holding a copy of Kutuzov. Uh, but th for those of you who are more interested in, in wargaming and, and uh, uh, re uh, recreating the circumstances of the campaign more closely, 
my one of my last books is uh, confronting Napoleon, and it deals with 1806-1807 campaign in 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 Poland. Uh, it's a uh, by it's a memoirs of the Russian commander in uh, in chief, and I think they, it provides a very good insights into the very tangibles that kind of the commanders are confronting: logistical, the tactical, but also the interpersonal, where you see the the problems between the the com uh, officers in the headquarters, the rivalries um, that maybe you'll be able to account in your in your uh, uh, rule sets. But if you uh, if your listeners want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter. Uh, a uh is my handle, or they can just Google my last name. It's uh, there are not many of uh, people with my last name out there dabbling in Napoleonic history. There's and, also and even book. fewer who can pronounce it. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you notice how we in the introductions got around trying to pronounce your name, but just having you do it first. Exactly. My students gave up a long time ago. They simply called me Dr. M, uh, which make me uh, kind of bond Bondesk villain uh, sounding <laughs> Dr. M. <laughs> like yeah. Dr. No. Uh, There's also a, I, a book called uh, The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History that um, I've heard a, a couple of good things said about uh -huh. it. I don't know if you're familiar with the author. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I think, I think it ties very much to... Yeah what we've been talking about today you know the need for the global perspective in order to understand what happens in a given campaign and i think alex does that brilliant they, folks haven't realized he's the author of said book um and <laughs> he you, does Thank that you. incredibly well um but i always welcome uh, that... anyone reaching out um i you know our, our field is quite small in, in terms of numbers with being dwarfed by world war ii and <laughs> world war one and all those other uninteresting uh, periods of history <laughs> All these so people they, studying the wrong war. It's just not exactly, good enough. Right? So if there's anyone interested in the Napoleonic era, Zach and I would love to hear from them. I believe you both are involved in a series of podcasts you might want to mention for our, uh, our our listeners. And we do it differently. Uh, I think in terms of how what your uh, preference is, Zach has a wonderful series of podcasts. Uh, well, he has a wonderful podcast, um, Napoleonicist, or, um, that uh, does thematic and i'll let him explain more and i do uh in uh, in collaboration with my esteemed friends um dr charles esdale and uh, alexander stevenson we do a podcast that looks at the entirety of revolutionary napoleonic era but only at three month intervals so each episode it deals only with three months of uh, time so if you like that uh, approach, please come and listen. If not, uh, Zach has a more thematic approach that is in, uh, uh, incredible. Go ahead, Zach. Oh, mine is just kind of, it, it's ideal if you have a sort of squirrel-like brain and just want to sort of deep dive into any particular topic at random. Um, there's also Age of Napoleon um, by Everett Rummage, uh, which takes, again, a kind of a chronological um, look at things. Mm -hmm. I forget where he's got to at this point in time. I think he's somewhere around 1805. Long way to go. We've got a long way to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, Everett's is, and I think other podcast hosts won't mind me saying Everett's podcast is the daddy. Uh, if you go into this field, you know before you've started that you're beaten because of the success and and the the love and the brilliance of Everett's show. Um yeah, Napoleonic Wars pod, we we cover anything and everything from 1789 through to 1815. There have been episodes on everything from the American Revolution, 
um, through to kind of series um, kind of episodes, looking at things like the Ponies Marshals, uh, the Peninsula War. So whatever your interest, you'll find something. It's very much kind of informed by my love of looking at ordinary people in these conflicts, um, that kind of move of kind of looking at what we call history from below. What's it like to be people like you and me? In the midst of all of this um but we also cover the the top down we've done plenty looking at napoleon from his mental state um through to his way of waging war and, and attempting to wage peace um so yeah if you've got a love for the show you you may well find something that interests you i love it three excellent podcast recommendations that's plenty for our listeners to chew on and uh, I, again miles and i really appreciate you guys both being here and and hopefully we can make good on the threat to get you involved uh, in a war game in the future thank you so much thank you gentlemen. absolute pleasure